Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanavi. My name is Uzair Yunus and last week we covered a startup, uh, Human-Healthcare, uh, providing concierge services on the healthcare side. And that reminded me that we haven't talked about the broader startup ecosystem in Pakistan for a while now. Uh, and a lot has changed from last year when we covered this uh, industry and ecosystem at length, talking to founders, talking to investors, getting a sense of the broader um, ecosystem itself. Um, but then, like much of the economy um, and much of the rest of the world, the technology sector, particularly startups, have seen a dramatic decline uh, in funding flows in terms of valuations, etc. Even red hot markets like India, for example, you've had companies like Ola uh, reduce their valuations. You've had companies like Baiju's uh, get into trouble. Um, so there's a lot going on in this sector globally and in Pakistan as well. Um, so I figured that we should talk about this topic and, and cover it. So joining me today is Mutahir Khan. Mutahir is a business and technology journalist based in Pakistan. He's also founder of Data Darbar, which is an excellent uh, place and platform for getting information and insights about what's going on in the broader technology ecosystem in Pakistan. So I'm excited for this conversation and, and Mutahir, uh, welcome to Pakistanami. Thank, thank you so much Adair, for having me. Uh... Love the work you guys are doing. So great to be here. Well, thank you for that. And love the work that you're doing as well, because it's very insightful and keeps people like me informed about what's <laughs> going on. So maybe inform the audience and start with that, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot going on. As I mentioned, it was riding on a high for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. 2023 has been a very tough period for the broader economy and the technology sector in particular as well, given higher interest rates globally, economic crisis in Pakistan internet shutdowns, bans, etc. Give us an overview of what is going on right now. And as you follow this sector, what are some key events that in the last seven months or so of 2023 have stood out to you that perhaps uh, are important events that the audience should also know and understand? I mean, there are a couple of things. Uh, it's the, uh, the first thing that we should take view of is that obviously, uh, Pakistan in 2021 and early parts of 2022 when there was still hangover from 2021 was in a different kind of high, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of VC funding. And there was a lot of startup activity specifically in VC funded startups. So, uh, and as the markets changed gears, Pakistan uh, changed gears uh, more sharply than anyone else. Uh, so it's uh, obviously, the recalibration that we have seen across the globe, Pakistan was even worse in, for compared to, I think, most markets. So that thing started becoming visible by third quarter of 2022, when funding was down significantly. By Q2 2022, we were still at 100 million odd a quarter, which is pretty good. Q1 2022 was 172 million or something. So again, that's a, that's a very healthy flow. But in the next uh, two quarters and then uh, in this quarter, the outgoing quarter of uh, 2023, that's when things really nosedived and we reached like 5.2 million of funding, which which is literally lower than what used to be average ticket size uh, one year ago. So that's the kind of, that's how steep the recalibration has been in Pakistan. Uh, and part of the reason obviously for that has been uh, the global Pull back in VC asset class generally. That's happened across the globe. Fundraising at the fund level has gone down significantly, especially at micro funds. So uh, that that was the kind of capital that was eventually being deployed in Pakistan, right? Uh, I'm not saying there was new ones were deploying in Pakistan, but uh, it was usually the smaller micro funds, sub 50 million or 100 million or less that you deploy in Pakistan. Those funds have seen a sharp adjustment and obviously Pakistan didn't take the back seat. So I think Q1, uh, I didn't run the numbers for Q2, but Q1 was when Pakistan did not see, if I'm not mistaken, Pakistan did not see or I think had saw one new foreign investor. Uh, before that, it used to be like 23, 32. Uh, so that that was the kind of activity that we used to see in the, uh, from foreign investors. and. Remember, foreign investors were the people uh, were the only ones that were actually carrying the investment value. So Pakistani VCs were involved in terms of deal flow, but they did not have the capital, they did not have the dry powder 
to take us to 350 million or uh, 360 million dollars of VC funding in a year. Uh, because if you sum up their their entire fund sizes, they wouldn't add up to sixty million, uh, three sixty million dollars. They would probably they wouldn't probably even add up to hundred million dollars. So obviously they they needed foreign investors to come in as anchor uh, capital, anchor investors or as lead investors to really amp up the uh, round sizes. And when those investors went away, a because of obviously the global readjustment, uh, b because of the downhill that Pakistani economy went on. And at one point, obviously, you had a lot of chatter about default. And obviously, that, that has just subsided uh, literally a month ago, right? Uh, and that really raised, changed the equation to Pakistan. I mean, why would anyone want to invest in a country that was attached with so much risk? Uh, and it makes sense from any asset class and obviously VC as risky as it may be. Uh, no one wants to get into an economy that's on the brink of a default, which was the case with us. So that has obviously that has been one, another reason. But if we zoom out a little bit, uh, then maybe, I mean, I think someone said this to me that obviously things uh, in 2020, like things are, when things are going uh, well, it's like every boom suggests that things are going better than they are and every bust suggests that, uh, that things are worse than they actually are. So I think that that applies to Pakistan as well. That applies to literally every cycle of business. When there's boom, uh, we know that that's not really a boom that's going to last. And when there's a bust, we know there are structural flaws, but things may not, things the actual on-ground picture may not present uh, the readjustment. So I think that applies to the general macroeconomy, markets in general, and Pakistan specifically as well. So that was the case. 2023 has been obviously very slow in terms of VC funding, but there are a couple of things that uh, have continued uh, as they were. I'll give you one example. I think SCCP just released uh, their, uh, a couple of weeks back, they released their company incorporation data. So Pakistan uh, incorporated more companies in, 20, if, in fiscal year 2023, meaning ending in June 2023. Uh, then they did uh, in June 20, uh, then in fiscal 2022, which was already higher than fiscal 21 and higher than fiscal 20. So like in the past four years, we've seen more companies come online than we've seen in the entire set before that the 71 years of Pakistan. So it gives you an idea that uh, there is there is a growing trend of entrepreneurship. If not VCs, there is a growing trend of company incorporation. And another uh, thing is that obviously most of these companies, except for real estate, which is obviously uh, an obsession for Pakistani businesses, but other than that, uh, technology sector standalone has been the second largest sector. And if you plug e-commerce with it, it actually comes out. I think it just edges out as the largest sector, if I'm not mistaken. So again, there's a strong technology focus uh, or technology interest at the very least in every single entrepreneur, real venture in Pakistan that's being undertaken. And the third thing that, uh, that SECP data uh, points out is, I think Pakistan saw 841 foreign investments in FY23. Which is which is usually that number was around 600, 500. So it's significantly higher than uh, what it used to be in the previous year. Obviously, we don't unfortunately know the size of those investments. Uh, we just know that the number of companies that recorded foreign investment that was 841. Uh, it's obviously there's still a long way to go, but again, it's sort of these are probably better indicators of the true pulse of corporate activity than uh, the hundred odd companies that are in VC because at the end of the day, in terms of capital, obviously those companies, in terms of capital, in terms of uh, press attention, they, those companies occupy a significant share, but in actual employment generation, uh, those companies are probably not the biggest contributors. They are contributors, yes, but I mean, I think you can probably count on fingers the number of companies that have more than a thousand people. 
uh, in the VC funded space, like maybe three or four, five at best, right? Now, that is not the case with IT services where every single uh, or every third office of Sharif SL might have like 300 people or 500 people or 700 people. Uh, that's that's the kind of scale these companies have. And I think uh, they get missed out uh, in the broader conversation uh, when we talk about entrepreneurship or what's happening in the technology ecosystem, which is more than just VC funded. Unfortunately, obviously, we don't have anything more than uh, we don't have any other sources of capital. That's the bigger that's the bigger problem. But generally, uh, yeah, that's the overview in my view. No, that's interesting, and and I think the S, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission of Pakistan (SECP)'s data, um, as you described it, does point to the fact that while international money has stopped flowing, while economic prospects have dimmed, as you said about the last month, there was a real risk of default. And maybe that risk of default hasn't gone away uh, over the next 12 months. But for the time being, there's some respite, at least over the next six to eight months because of the IMF agreement. Um, but we were right. We do miss the broader technology story in the sense that, you know, the IT services export houses are not considered entrepreneurs or they're not considered technology, mm -hmm. you know, companies in the sense that we think of when we talk about the startup ecosystem, although they are startups in my view, and I think you would agree. But on that side, and we'll get to that part of the yeah. equation in just a moment, but on the VC funded side, right, we saw, and again, not unique to Pakistan, this froth in the market. You saw airlift raising a lot of money. You saw every other, as you said, headlines about bigger and bigger rounds and, and more excitement about funding coming in. But then things started to turn around. Airlift went belly up. There have been stories on Jugnu. There have been other startups that have sort of wrapped up operations. And much of the coverage has led to this, you know, conversation about the fact that, oh, the media is creating negative uh, stories. One, I would love for you to comment on that. But more importantly, what happened with these sort of like big story startups um, and and what are the key drivers from your point of view that led to the dramatic super high valuation and then going bust all of a sudden? So, uh, I, I think this first thing, I mean, I don't want to become like told you so bad, but obviously there was, there was always a real risk of Pakistan's own macros uh, spoiling the party. Uh, regardless of what happened in the international market, any company that was operating in Pakistan, uh, if it commanded a valuation of $300 million or $250 million uh, in two years. I mean, that without any serious cash flow and just based on the basis of GNB, then obviously, uh, I mean, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, you obviously can argue that valuation is what two parties agree to, sure. But uh, I'm talking about valuations that have any real chance of being of being exercised, right? So those were not the valuations that could ever be exercised in Pakistan. I think I, I'm, it has not been being pessimistic. This is me having seen enough of the market that it doesn't make sense, right? Uh, system is a good example. I think system is trading at what, 123 billion PKR or something. Uh, so it's it's a pretty cheap company compared to, uh, uh, it's, its valuation I think is either just above or just below one of the big short startups. So, uh, and systems obviously has like operating margins of, 18, 19%, and then you have the exchange rate gains and whatnot. Uh, so this, then you contrast it with the valuations that these startups had. Generally, uh, even in the developed markets, they were subject to, I mean, you can call it the pump and dump that was happening in the private markets, right? Uh, you buy X at X percent at, uh, you buy X percent at Y dollars and then you try to sell that X percent at uh, 20Y uh, in a matter of 10 months on paper. You can command a great valuation. You can do even like a good secondary. Uh, but again, A, that requires a good liquid market, uh, which unfortunately Pakistan does not have or did not have either at the time. So, and obviously, the entire company being acquired or going public was not an option 
at least again going public requires a certain scale a certain unit economics a uh, certain level of transparency that obviously it's it was too early i'm still too early for a lot of product based companies uh, and and in terms of acquisition pakistan just doesn't have the md market uh, not at the moment uh, that anyone can come in and buy let's say an 80 million dollar company uh, uh 80 million dollar company at let's say C series a so that that was that was the kind of problem that pakistan was always going to have regardless of what happened in the fundraising environment the only hope was that the international investors will keep pumping money for the follow on rounds and round uh, follow on rounds from uh pre series a to series a to series b and series c but uh even then there were some question mark for example earl earl founder pointed out as well and i remember having this conversation early in earlier in 2021 when there is the money with with a uh, friend that when you take 85 million dollar and you put it together uh, you break it down by by investors so the number of institutions they had was i think three or at least public three or four uh putting together 85 million dollar through high net worth individuals is in a, is a tremendous feat in terms of raising capital but it does point out it does it does point to certain cracks in what will happen when you go for a 300 million dollar round because maybe you can scrape together 85 million uh, through high net worth but it becomes almost impossible to do that for 300 million dollars but so uh, let let's get into the airlift saga right very yeah. lot of money was raised and then they made a pivot in the pandemic going from a right more like a mobility company to into commerce and into um you know a uh, quick service delivery essentially and my yeah. question again sitting from the outside was looking at the business and asking myself the question a what's the target market here and the target market for somebody who can afford you know or would desire a 15 10 minute quick service delivery or 30 minute delivery across pakistan even in a big city like karachi is a very small segment of the population yeah. then i asked myself the question okay that segment of the population which is let's say more skewed towards the top 5% or 1% of income earners as households are likely to have the household help that can do the 15 service delivery for them right your chokidar your driver your yeah, gardener absolutely. your chotu whatever right so you can send somebody to the corner store if you want milk in 10 minutes right so it always was a question uh, in terms of how how much you can do that but then of course we see from the global example you can grow gmv a lot through deep discounting which yeah. is a fair strategy flipkart has done it it got bought out for 17 billion dollars by walmart who just continues has continued to invest in that and there's a strategy behind that it, it makes sense and your point on the macro story is valid but operationally what mm-hmm. happened at early because there's just so much there's been a lot of conversation on it and i just want you to sort of in in sort of a top line way explain to the audience was ex- what exactly went wrong from i mean, mean generally okay g- generally obviously what went wrong uh, was that when uh, gmv became the key target for any startup to achieve right and uh pakistan is a very difficult market to get gmv uh and most mar- i mean i'm not saying that it's easy to get uh, huge gmv in any market but pakistan is a particularly difficult market especially when you're talking about consumer segment right because you need to get enough volumes to get that gmv let's say if you're talking about 100 million gmv or if you're talking 50 million that requires significant significant volumes because obviously the average order size is going to be very small in pakistan uh, and that's uh, that will always be the case within any emerging market for that matter pakistan probably even more so given our economy in the last 5 years i mean there is a serious contraction in purchasing power that i think pretty much everyone would have noticed right uh, and now you're coming at that market and you need to show the gmv to investors in order to keep raising more and uh, so what you do is that you go for a couple of things what real effective was they uh, started discounting uh, high value items for example at one point they were selling iphones for like 6 to 7000 rupees discount or something so 
I mean, percentage terms, it's a, let's say on 200, let's say 200,000, uh, 200,000 rupees iPhone, they were selling at 190. So I mean, percentage, that's not, that's not a lot, but in value, that's a significant discount because I mean, you don't, you don't give a, let's say a 5% discount on cars generally. That's you, you on cars, the discount is you add, you add value, you give value added service of servicing or whatever, right? Uh, that's the kind of stuff. So just straight away giving, uh, booking those losses uh, on inventory, it's a huge risk. And obviously after a point, you burn cash to do that. And in order to keep doing that, you need more inflows of cash. Unfortunately, that's when cash stopped. So everyone was uh, burning cash in the hope that there will be uh, more cash coming in in the next six months or in the next 12 months. And then after uh, after they had spent most of their cash, which was what happened with the lift, which was what happened with Jugnu, uh, that the cash stopped coming. For Jugnu's case, in Jugnu's case, for example, the investor, which made an investment last year, uh, reportedly backed out, and they had they only gave them half of the twenty-two million promised. So every uh, planning, every business forecasting was done on the basis of those twenty-two million, let's say, and now you have have only eleven million. And airlift case, I think, as far as I know, the money came in, uh, the, all the money came in, so it's not, it wasn't the case of existing investors backing out, uh, but it was the case of around being uh, around falling through, right? They were believed to be, uh, they were believed to have actually closed a 300 million, 300, 350 million dollar round uh, from GoPuffs. Uh, and that round, again, I do, this was Reportedly, a very credible claim. Uh, again, I haven't seen any documents, so I can't comment on the veracity. But uh, it was believed to be a three hundred million could be an strategic acquisition, and then that three hundred million rug is pulled uh, within a day, and obviously you can't do anything. And then obviously, when one investor backs out, and there's a change in the model, and this is group of was doing exactly or similar to what Airlift was doing. In Pakistan, right, and then Gopa, I think, laid off forty percent staff in December twenty twenty one. If I'm not mistaken, uh, this was around the time when airlift conversation was happening at, uh, as well. And then uh, they move, they pull out, they or reportedly they pull out again. Uh, I I don't want to claim any ownership of these facts. I'm basing it on what I've read, what I've heard from fairly credible sources. Yeah, but uh, again. No factual evidence that I put that at risk. Uh, and investors, not just with respect to Pakistan, but investors start questioning the model itself because when the poster boys of that model in the US start pulling back, then the investors of similar companies uh, think think about these things as well. Okay, why didn't they do it if they had? Uh, 10x the money or 20x the money that airlifted, why couldn't they pull it off, right? Uh, what, how much money would we need to inject in uh, XYZ company for it to get to that point? Uh, so these are the questions I think with airlift that, uh, and from purely operational perspective, obviously, if there was a culture of, I mean, generally in VC startups, when you have the money taps open, then it reflects in the way you spend. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to not, uh, I mean, there would be hardly any founders uh, or at least founders with teams of more than 20 people that would be very conservative in spending if they have venture capital. It's just not, it's not just the, meant the to whole, like The that. whole idea is to spend to grow. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, right, exactly. So, and uh, a lot of, uh, back in the day, a lot of founders saw an opportunity and they capitalized on that because it was the first time that, actually meaningful capital was available in Pakistan to someone uh, who did not ever could even imagine having access to that. So if let's say a graduate of 2015 with five years of experience could now raise $6 million, $7 million 
having completely having entirely worked in Pakistan their their entire lives, right? That was never imagined. I mean, you could never say that. Okay, someone let's say I graduated in twenty seven. Let's say I am going to raise money pre twenty twenty. I think no one my age could have imagined uh, that you could go and go out and market and even imagine about raising two billion rupees or one billion rupees. <laughs> that's that's a number that you just read in news that's not a number that has any relevance to you in your personal life right that's an abstract number but that became, that number became real and possible for not again, again not a majority of people but again that dream became possible uh, so and in order to attain that dream there was a certain playbook that you had to play uh, whether it worked out for for founders or not i i don't think it particularly did but at the moment you knew what the criteria was in order to get to that dream it was to show investors a certain promise of digitizing a country of 220 220 million with x million internet users and uh, y, uh, y person uh, young population and there was a clear pitch which was replicated across the board and it sold like Investors bought it. It's as simple as that. I mean, I, I'm no one to have any questions about it. Like, if the investors were happy with putting their money and the founders were smart to uh, press investors on what worked for them, uh, so I think it was a, it worked at the time. But obviously, uh, from from a founder's perspective, it, that that first five million dollar round, the first ten million. Was always supposed to be the first of many rounds. It was never meant to be five million. Was not it uh, because if you are going with the intention of burning for the next three years, you uh, with the same way that you might be hiring like uh, there would be startups who would be hiring in uh, Europe for certain roles that were difficult to uh, scout for in Pakistan. So obviously, when you're hiring in Europe or when you're going abroad. Uh, then you cannot just have. You need to have that those pockets as well, and you need to have those budgets as well. And unfortunately, those budgets stopped for those investors. And for some, well, who, the ones who are still surviving, uh, they pivoted in some form or the other, or they significantly cut back on their expenses, either by downsizing or almost entirely spent. Uh, Cutting the marketing spend. Now, there are a couple of cases which like, their startups have literally pulled the plug on marketing spend. Hardly any. They, they're just waiting for the for this cycle to be over that they can start spending at a time when there is a potential return on ad spend, right? And then you can show some benchmarks, some KPIs to the investors to raise the further round. Uh, at the moment, I think everyone feels that any money they spend mm. would be a wasted dollar. So I think that's that's the general perception that I get. And and related to that, so what's been the um, impact on the job market? Right, again, as you said, they were trying to find it difficult to get talent and going to Europe for certain roles, etc. I heard stories about you know people being outbid, get an offer. And this was, again, a global phenomenon through the pandemic. Yeah. It was in the US, it was in India. You heard in Europe the same story. Parts of East Asia, Africa, the same issue. That, hey, Mutair joins Uzair's startup. Uzair makes him a plus 20% market rate offer. Three months later, the next round, the competitor or some other company, Mutair gets a plus 50% from that, then you're gone. And now I'm trying to outbid somebody else to get the other Mutair in my team, right? But now the funding's not there. So what are you seeing hearing in terms of like the recruiting cycle for talent at these at these startups? Like what's going on over there? I think that's almost like it's almost dead in, in a in a way. So I mean, there are certain functions that the startups are still hiring for, but that war seems to be over. Uh, everyone is trying to retain that talent. And obviously, that everyone was trying to retain that talent every single point, regardless of the funding. But uh, but we have to, I think we have to zoom out for a second because when we talk about that particular talent market, that was a very small niche in the market. Because again, as I mentioned, there are 80 
2021, I think there were 82 startups that raised funding. Uh, now you're talking about 80 companies. I mean, again, not all 80 of them would be fighting for the talent. It would probably be the 15, 15 of them that would be fighting. 15, 20, let's say. 25% of the companies that had raised money would probably be fighting for that talent. Uh, it would be the airlifts and the bazaars and the retailers, right? Mm, because they had enough capital. What would you say is the average size of these 80? I would say roughly, let's assume each one on average is for 50 people, high estimate. That's 4,000 people writ large in that ecosystem, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's a very small base. And again, uh, and I think it was generally uh, that bidding war was mostly around like three, four universities. Uh, I I don't think that a lot of others, at least from the relatively younger batch of talent were particular beneficiaries of that. Obviously, you had the Lums and the IBAs and the GKs uh, and NAS probably benefiting from that. But uh, you couldn't hear uh, maybe, let's say, Ikra University student or Karachi University student particularly uh, being in on that uh, radar. They're so that, getting poached for 50% of a market price. Yeah, they, I, I don't think, I, I think it applied to a very small subset uh, and that is generally vocal uh, on internet. So I think that uh, that subset, it, there was a clear, there, obviously there, there's no denying that that particular subset witnessed, you can, I mean, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, but whatever the closest would be, uh, a spike in uh, salary, right? Especially if you're technical. Uh, I know someone, not necessarily, obviously there was a, there was a global phenomenon, uh, like there, was a, there were global pressures as well, obviously that let's say I'm a technical guy uh, and someone's, I'm currently at a software house at let's say 100k with three years of experience or two years of experience, which was the normal case, right? And now there's a funded startup that is offering me to 50k, again, very common in during those days. But what happens next is that uh, a global company offers me Three thousand dollars. Now, startups were also outbid by global competitors, so they were not just competing against. It was very easy to compete against local software houses. You just need to uh, pay like a relatively decent salary, uh, and 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 not be exploitative. I mean, that's that benchmark was very low, but when you go against the global company, especially the remote talent culture that developed during that time, then it became difficult to uh, retain that talent because again, if you're a technical person, then I think it, even if you're not good, getting a job is not a problem. Uh, so even even probably the worst talent get uh, worst technical resources can get uh, jobs that the rest of the human capital in Pakistan could even dream of. Uh, primarily because of the exchange rate, but also because there is a real crunch for technical resources everywhere. Whether it's perceived or it's real, I think it's very real, but like even if we can debate about how good the quality is or not, but quality comes a little later for mo most of the times. First of all, you need to get your hands on someone uh, and then think about how good the work is uh, so I think that that was the there were a couple of factors, but obviously since then that has changed from a local funded ecosystem. That global pressure is still there, and probably even higher because obviously uh, the exchange rate has gone down what eighty percent, eighty five percent since in the last twelve months alone. So you are talking about even if those eighty companies do not have the funds, or those twenty five percent of the eighty companies do not have the funds to uh, do poaching wars and whatnot. The global companies have enough capital to pay uh, $700 uh, to, to a Pakistani guy uh, and basically get everything they want. Uh, 12 hours job for $700. That's a dream. Yeah, and, and I guy. would even add that they could, you know, they probably, the global ones have more pressure to do that because they also have to cut costs now. So they're also thinking exactly. about finding cheaper pools of talent that is good enough for the time being. Exactly. So I think that that part, that pressure still stays on the ecosystem, but that pressure was never something that the ecosystem could have dealt with, right? Uh, 
I mean, whatever company it is in Pakistan, almost every company would like to pay in rupees. Because their revenue, if their revenue comes in rupees, then rupees, then it would be idiotic to not pay in rupees. As as feel good as it may seem to pay in dollars, if your revenue is coming, then obviously, unless you have investor tap investor taps open, then obviously it, it's a different equation. But uh, so no company in Pakistan in their right mind would be, uh, or no local market focused company in their right mind would ever pay salaries in dollars, right, or peg to dollars. Uh, and that market is still there, and now they have the even three three people company who couldn't previously imagine hiring the resource abroad can now easily do, and they just need to pay three hundred dollars, and they they'll get a they'll not only get it. Some of the best university graduates in Pakistan. I mean, I think you can you can go to some of the top universities in Pakistan, and you can see that a lot of their freshers are now going for basic clerical remote jobs in the US or or elsewhere. Because obviously pay-wise, start, they start out at like a 60% higher rate or uh, compared to local company. So even if that may have, if, even if that may harm your career in the longer run, let's say because you're not doing something that is, uh, that has a lot of room for growth. In the short run, that payout is very significant for anyone to say no. Let's say I am, a, let's say a local company is hiring me as a fresher for hundred thousand, and the other company is paying me five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars is peanuts for any global company, and I know even if I leave them, I can probably get for another six hundred dollars. And not only am I protecting myself, I'm getting a far higher salary, and I'm getting a sixty percent almost higher salary. Uh, completely. So that that and, and you're guarded out. against inflation, which is the most exactly. important problem it's, right exactly. now. Exactly, exactly. So I think that again, no one can really, no one can really fight that. And in terms of, I think the bigger, I'll just add uh, on the IT outsourcing side, which has, which used to be the main supplier of talent, uh, this problem still exists, right? Uh, because those were the companies that primarily uh, recruited most of the talent. Because again, you could maybe 4,000, 5,000 people would probably work in the startup ecosystem and 5,000 people would work in systems alone. And then maybe 2,510 per or something, whatever the numbers may be. So two companies or one company is generally, one IT company is generally bigger than all startups combined at the moment as well, at least. So their demand for talent would be far higher and they are still struggling to fill those roles, especially for senior roles. Uh, maybe not for uh, product because they don't build products, uh, but they are struggling for solution architects. They are struggling for, I know companies, even product companies, seriously struggling for head of engineering uh, because you don't have, uh, especially even companies that uh, have a back office in Pakistan and selling in the US market. Uh, it's, I knew one company that was struggling to, I think they tried to hire a head of engineering for a year, uh, because no one really had the experience of selling to the U S market and serving hundreds of thousands of users and building the architecture for that, managing the architecture for that. So I think that's, that's a big, big challenge in Pakistan, especially as you go up the seniority ladder, that talent is not there. And obviously that talent will develop in time uh either either we import that talent or we train that talent there is no other source of talent it's not going to uh come from the skies right yeah no i think that that is consistent with i mean across the board one thing that you know again it's it's very easy to engage in sloganeering and say pakistan has amazing human capital and is cheap and the exchange rate and blah 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 but what you said, I've heard this from almost every startup or technology company, not even that. I mean, last week I spoke with uh, Dr. Atif and he was saying that it took him and his team 400 interviews for to hire one nurse in Pakistan, right? Just because, and they were like, we're willing to pay above market rates and we just could not find the right talent at the skill set we wanted. 
um, even in the nurse area because the quality was not good enough, right? And again, the 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 reason why I think, I mean, you can find nurses in Pakistan, but if you're trying to provide a concierge-like service to your customers and charge a premium for it, and you're willing to pay a premium salary, then you want premium talent. And that is where the problem lies in the country across the board. And I think, again, those who sort of talk about this amazing human capital story need to understand that, yes, the quantity is there, but the quality needs to be built up significantly. Um, another question I had, obviously, if you look, project into the future, 12 to 18 months, let's say, what are some things you're watching? Again, before we hit recording, I, I was talking to you about this. It's something I've written about myself. There are a lot of laws on the docket. And probably by the time this episode goes live on, on YouTube, um, there might be an e-safety bill passed because the way parliament is passing legislation, it's fast food legislation. They've passed the official secret act amendment today. Um, there's a data protection bill that's on the docket. Um, I've read that uh, and I've talked to people, industry, civil society, et cetera. Everyone's really concerned about these bills that are there. Um, so one, share a bit about your own thoughts at a, at this point in time about these legislation coming in, but more importantly, where do you see things going in the next year or so? On legislation, I have like generally, uh, I'm, I've never considered myself to be, I'm, I've never considered myself to be a libertarian in that respect that I'm I'm all for regulation if it's done properly, right? But uh, but I think Pakistani policy makers, Pakistani regulators have two modes. They have a hyperactivity and a hypoactivity mode, right? So in hypoactivity, you have the clear case of what was happening with the loan sharks, digital loan sharks recently. Uh, complaints were being brought forward every day. Uh, there were couple the topic was raised by media multiple times uh, by us like at least like i personally wrote about like four four four, four or five times uh, over a year uh, so again it was and there was there were like slight slaps uh, and sorry to interrupt to, you this is very it's a good point you raise on on this point because i remember people like you others on social media writing about it agitating on this for months and the in if I remember the timeline correctly, at least in the last wave, the India story on loan yeah. sharks broke much after the Pakistani one. And the Indians took action yeah. much, much, much faster yeah. on these and clamping down on this than the SECP. In fact, there was a lot of yeah. noise on social media saying, look what Delhi is doing. Can't you just replicate yeah. what their action plan is? Because this is leading to suicide, right? This is physical. Yeah. This is not just monetary harm which is criminal in, yeah, in exactly. itself people were dying as a result of this exactly so i, I mean regulators regulators have this mode right so uh if there's something i mean it may not it may not necessarily be a case of lobby right? it may it could be okay i mean giving given it's pakistani regulators it could be a case of like complete lethargy for like again, I'm just guessing. I think there's something wrong with the corridors of. Upar se order nahi aaya. Upar se order nahi aaya. And the second mode is they get hyper uh, focused on a particular region. And I think my, my theory is that, uh, especially with respect to tech and businesses, a lot of our regulators, they're they're old school uh, fellows, so they read paper in the morning. And they'll read up on okay, EU did this, uh, EU passed this particular regulation, and US is bringing this particular regulation. India is their favorite. Okay, what can we, <laughs> what can we do now? So I think like the best example to uh, signify this was I think in 2021 when the markets were red hot, uh, SPAC activity was through the roof. Securities and Exchange Commission of Pakistan published a draft framework for SPAC. And now we are a market that does not even get regular listings, but somehow we needed a framework for, for SPAC. And obviously, I think, nothing I think, came I think two weeks ago, the state bank issued a note on use of AI because that's the new thing right now everywhere. So if, if, if you remember the CBDC thing, Radha Bakar left out this, uh, uh, I don't know what, what to show. Uh, would be the only word that can probably de describe it. 
uh, that oh we are we are studying CBDC. Yeah, I mean, they can't even figure out publishing basic data. For, let alone uh, they can't even upload their existing their entire data on Easy Data for at the moment. So I mean, forget publishing new data sets. But uh, obviously, then uh, we but are. You're, you're far ahead of me. I to just say that at least publish whatever your research department is working on as working papers for the rest of us human beings to study what exactly you are researching at this point in time. Yeah, I, I don't think they believe in those second laws. <laughs> but uh, so this is this is what happens with regulation, right? So I think data bill, like again, data bill is is due. Like there is no doubt about that. Uh, I, I remember very clearly, I started, I entered this industry, I entered this field, like started following tech back in 2018. And right around that time, like I think the same month, uh, the first draft of the data protection bill was uh, tabled. Uh, I read that bill, I remember, then the 2020 bill came in, and then 2021. And now it's 2020. Let, let me ask you a question <laughs> since you raised this, because this is a question I, I, I have, and I know the answer to this, but I'll just indulge, indulge me for a moment. 2018, May, this bill first draft came out, as you said. It's been five years. Do you know who the authors of this bill are? Um, no. No. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's probably a consultant uh, based out of Islamabad that started researching about data privacy right after they won the contract. Uh, I think this is what happens with most Islamabad-based consulting projects. Uh, there's Again, there's something seriously wrong with the way work is done. That's why city. I asked this question. Like, Can you imagine <laughs> that it's been five years and a bill has been drafted and its latest draft, by the way, I think I was speaking with people that's online. People are not fully sure if that's the latest draft, number one. But let's ignore that for a moment because that's par for the course. People do not know who the authors of this bill are. And typically it's written in a committee in parliament. That's the process. I cannot yeah. find a parliamentarian who is willing to come on this podcast and say, boss, I am the lead author. Let me explain to you my logic for inserting certain sections. I cannot find anybody. I'll, I'll actually be a little, uh, I'll be a little more generous with respect to data bill because again, They've more or less copied what the general standards are from a regulator's perspective. And obviously, uh, that debate of what the regulators want what versus what the businesses want, that, that divide is always going to be there. So in terms of that, I think, I don't think it's a particularly great work of, uh, it's, again, but it's, at the end of the day, it's meant to be a bill. So it's never, it's, it's, it's not a policy as such. It's always going to be, it was a very boring read, so obviously. So... But they, they tried to follow the general blueprints on what qualifies as, a, from a regulator's perspective, what qualifies as a good bill, right? So I think uh, in, in a lot of senses, they uh, simply followed what the EU did. Like they, they kept GDPR as the benchmark and then revolved everything around that and then took a bit from Turkey or took a bit from India. And that's generally a lot of regulation is done across the board, I think, uh, for every for every sector. Uh, or, but on regulation, something very not too long ago, uh, Ministry of IT published its national AI policy, which was a pretty, uh, on this point, it was a pretty funny exercise because uh, they, <laughs> like, there are a couple of instances for, like, in that policy, like, uh, they talk about, uh, oh, Pakistan suffers from a, uh, they, they were talking about particular use cases where AI policy will come in and they were talking about digitization of health data and how that can be utilized train models that are specific to Pakistan. And uh, uh, Obviously, that's a great idea and it should be done uh, absolutely. But they talk about, okay, uh, many people suffer from chronic diseases. I mean, only if there were published numbers of how many people died from those chronic diseases in Pakistan. It's... That data is literally published by the PBS. You just have to go and open that document once. You don't have to do that a lot. And then it's it talks about oh a, about publications in AI journals. And surprisingly, Pakistan doesn't do too bad on AI publications. Like it's it was I was looking at the data. OECD had a library on this AI publication. Uh, Pakistan is in a 
fairly decent place. Uh, and again, if you look at patents, generally, obviously, patents are not specific to AI. Uh, in AI, actually, patents may, may be even more difficult to uh, obtain, especially for a Pakistani company, because we don't do cutting-edge work in terms of R&D, that kind of money that requires. We don't have that, unfortunately. Uh, but Pakistan, I think I think you need about eight or nine or whatever the insanely high count is of permits to import a 3D printer in Pakistan. So exactly. there's all sorts so, of perps. Exactly. exactly. So, I mean, you, basic, I mean, even uh, purchasing basic hardware, basic, like a decent laptop is a, is becoming a challenge for universities, businesses and everyone. So, I mean, forget cutting about Pakistan is doesn't again compared to similar markets, which I generally consider uh, Egypt, Bangladesh, Indonesia. They are ahead of us, but like in more or less in the same league, at least com more compared to India. Uh, so again, don't do that bad. And that data is available. It, for example, on AI publications or generally on publications, HEC publishes that data. Publications by each category as per HEC universities. So only if that they could use that data and uh, use that data to guide the policy. Instead, what we had, we had random targets that by 2027, Pakistan will train 1 million uh, people in AI. Now, where that 1 million is coming from, I have absolutely no idea because if our actual talent, if our talent inflow or the IT graduates per year is around 25 to 30,000 as industry sources uh, then how do you get to 1 million I mean even if you train every single existing person on AI which is obviously not happening and you train every single new person even then you might not reach but 1 million it's, Mutai, so that it's the same <laughs> it's the same logic as like you know every announcement that's made ahead of elections uh, in a speech is uh, is district may university khol denge bhai aap university khol doge professor kahan se laoge <laughs> professor nahi hai we don't have enough phds for the existing universities why are you building new ones right so that's always the always the question but coming back to the ecosystem itself you talked about legislation like what's your outlook where do you see things going as you said at the start of this podcast incorporation is happening companies are being founded businesses are opening up there is a cultural shift on entrepreneurship so what's your realistic take on what comes next and and where things go from here i think generally what i think would be next is uh, specifically within the tech uh, i think there's after this after this entire long episode of economic uncertainty uh, generally at least from again i happen to speak to a lot of people who are, who happen to do businesses, uh, right? And maybe my circle is very biased in terms of that, but I, I see a real change in approach of what to do next. Uh, I think everyone, okay, no one really had uh, any particular trust in the state institutions uh, to bring about meaningful change, especially with respect to economy or for that, or anything for that matter. So there was, there has always been a serious trust deficit in the Pakistani public, right? But, and in business as well, that is why uh, a lot of them make every single possible contingency plan. So if you're setting a factory, you will uh, have like two to three sources of power. You you might even put I, uh, your independent power uh, and then you have, you might even go for solar for like if you're a small business. Very yeah. efficient way of running a business. In fact, like yeah, I was, I absolutely. remember talking to a, a a business owner who has a franchise of fast casual restaurants, and I met him like a mm -hmm. couple of years ago, even before this crisis began. Um, and I was like, "How's business doing? Are you willing to like, thinking of expanding more? What's the outlook?" And he was like, "Yeah, I want to expand. I have a desire to go national in a big way." But he's like, do you, do you want to know what I'm struggling with right now? I'm like, what? He's like, my goal right now is to sink my CapEx that would have gone into expanding my franchises into converting my kitchens from natural gas to cylinders because there is no gas. And I was like, what, what a waste of potential, right? You are exactly. entrepreneurs who want to scale and create more jobs. 
are having to troubleshoot simply because the sarkar has failed to provide natural gas to them essentially you're down to dealing with municipal issues like uh, there are issues with okay pedestrian uh, footpath uh, okay you you have this much inch extra on footpath or you are you have your seats and then they'll go and take away your uh, tables uh, and there's and obviously they get there's bribery at every stage. So there's a lot of firefighting that uh, these businesses in particular, more than tech companies, tech companies are, I think, still very much insular uh, to an extent, very much insular from these developments. Uh, and because, again, if you're a service company, if, you, if you're a pure service company, you don't have to deal with this kind of government thuggery uh, that that is customer facing company might have to right except but when they decide to turn off the internet then you're screwed <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> but i mean that's that that was also one of the uh, serious blows right uh, but generally what what i've seen is that okay pakistani companies have come to the realization even even the rent seeking ones that okay they can keep collecting the rents if they want but if they if they really want to protect themselves from Serious economic, uh, I don't know, collapse. Then uh, the only way is to have assets abroad. I mean, either you would go, either either you would liquidate your assets in Pakistan and go, I don't know, buy property in Dubai and Portugal or somewhere, and then uh, just move your, uh, just move move uh, to those countries and try for a citizenship or get an investment visa or whatever. But the others. They are trying to come up with ways, or they are looking to partner with people who might be uh, who might be able to set up businesses abroad. For example, especially in IT services, uh, there's a growing trend. Uh, uh, I think like recently, today I saw the ICAP was organizing this uh, a seminar, uh, session on export of accounting services. For example, again, it's a very low hanging fruit for Pakistan, uh, given the given that a we have more than enough accounting talent and we our accounting talent is already well placed across the globe uh, account, our accountants are every single at every single place across the globe and they're at every single place of importance in pakistan as well right so from k electric to i don't know uh, even FB, system FBR like, FBR chairman FBR, the right exactly so blog is very strong so but and that that there's an export potential, right? Uh, and that export potential until now hasn't really been realized. And it's again, it's a low hanging fruit. You don't have to, you don't have to build like a, a hundred million dollar company or something. You just have to build. You can easily bring in like hundred, two hundred collectively. Then it can add hundred, two hundred million dollars of export revenue in a in two three years per per uh, per year, right? That, and that's a that's a serious question. For Pakistan, that's $200 million is not much uh, generally in the grand scheme of things, but for Pakistan, it's a reasonable question. Uh, similarly, for consulting, again, obviously, we have a relatively, we have a far smaller talent pool of, of consultants compared to accountants. But again, it's generally a low-hanging fruit that you don't need huge teams. You can build, you can do sales from the main offices, from, uh, from developed markets, and then assign that work to the back office in Pakistan, and I think that that realization uh, has set in. And businesses, I don't know if they are able to do anything or not, uh, because doing this would either require would require spending some money. There would be some cost to it. There's a cost to business development. There's a cost to building that infrastructure. There's a cost to, and if you're doing remote work, essentially, uh, there's a cost for that talent as well. Because that talent can, at the end of the day, join competing companies. They will, they will always be, go for competing companies. Because if you're already working for, a, if you've already done work for the U.S. market, if not for a U.S. company, then it becomes easier for you to work for a U.S. company next. And that retention, uh, that that churn rate always comes with the cost for companies. So there will be, there will have to be investments, whether the local states or local businesses are ready for that. Obviously, we don't know. But at least they are accepting, okay, the status quo cannot work. And I think I've seen that. I was having a conversation with uh, someone uh, whose family is in the uh, textile business. 
Uh, I think this was back in February, and this was around the time when uh, basically all factories were uh, shut uh, because their raw materials weren't being sourced or they were stuck at the containers. And he was telling me that, okay, we, we, we have everything, but we don't have the buttons. Okay, why don't why why don't you make buttons? It's not that difficult, uh, and it, it it was very easy to make buttons. But why would you make buttons when you can import them for like twenty cents uh, of that cost, right? So there was no business sense to importing buttons, uh, and now we are willing to invest that money into making buttons for the entire industry, even at a higher cost. But there's we cannot import machinery. To set that up, yeah, yeah, and so a, a lot of things. I mean, again, businesses. I think I do believe that businesses did contribute to certain things, but no one could have imagined that things will get to the point they did, uh, especially in July 2022 when there was hardly any imports being allowed. Uh, so it was it was a very scary situation at the at the time for business, and I think that eroded. Much of the confidence, uh, which seem, seem going by the last month of market performance, uh, seems to be uh, a relic of the past. But uh, mm -hmm. at the time, it, it at the time it seemed like okay, this 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 shit's real, right? Uh, but I don't know. Again, markets uh, show exuberance way more uh, way more enthusiastically uh, as our dear friend reality. as our dear friend ariba shahid says uh, <laughs> the psx is not an indicator of the economy i will i will before she yells at me for this point um, i will say that uh, over here uh, mutai this has been a wonderful conversation um, and as always uh, wonderful reading your research and keeping tabs on what you're following and commenting on so appreciate the insights um, before I let you go, um, I always ask my guests this. So what are two or three books you would recommend to the audience? Uh, so, uh, like, uh, okay, I, one would be, uh, what, this book generally, I really liked that book. It was part of also my, uh, me shunning my nationalistic era and then moving to, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, what era, but, uh, India wins freedom by Abul Kalam Azad. Uh, I really loved that book. Uh, I loved that book when I, when I last read. Uh, it's been some time. Uh, I read that as a kid. <laughs> so, but it it helped me shape the way I see history. So I think that was a very fun. Uh, then August uh, Peter O'Bourne's uh, Cornered Tiger uh, on the history of Pakistan cricket. And I uh, that's again. I'm a huge Pakistan cricket fanatic. So. Uh, Reading about the likes of Kardar and Mohani Mohammed, like it's a it's a very different experience. Uh, and I think the third would be completely different, but Patras Bukhari ke Mazameen. Uh, again, one of the best displays of satire and humor that that has ever been published in any language. At least, hmm. uh, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. But speaking of corner tigers, what's your view on the new style of play by Team Pakistan that they demonstrated uh, in Sri Lanka? I, I, I have been waiting for it for a long, long time. Again, uh, I think this was the last showed glimpses of it. Like, like I remember this conversation happening back in 2015 World Cup when Sarfaraz was be, was brought in place of Nathan Chamchet that he'll start attacking, he'll start playing attacking cricket. And the same conversation... Uh, was reproduced in 2017 Champions Trophy when Fakhar was brought in uh, in place of Ahmed Shahzad and it uh, gave us results as well. So I think that approach has worked uh, and I am I'm fairly confident. I mean, again, in this series, it worked. So I don't see any reason why we should play as, I don't know, kids that have, that have a gun to their heads uh, that they need to stay by the day. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, Personally, Pakistan, even at least in ODIs, I remember uh, the two contrasting, uh, in, it was in 2015 World Cup, Pakistan's average score used to be around 235, 240. Uh, and no matter what we did, we played 50 overs, the score would have been, the score was the same. We played 30 overs, 40 overs, the score stayed the same. 
and in one match on the other hand west indies conceded uh, new zealand scored like 400 odd runs guptill scored 237 i think not out uh, against west indies and west indies tried to go for it from ball one and they scored 250 runs 30 overs all out so basically in 30 overs they got to the same score that we did by like with the slow poison that the our team was that okay we have to play till we have to play pure 50 overs khelne par 50 over mein khel ke haar ke koi izzat nahi hai it it's still as big okay in world cups you might have to uh, move here and a bit here and there for net run rate but generally there is no there is no lesser disrespect in losing after playing 50 overs compared to uh 40 over yeah, yeah good yeah. cricket right so i think i'm i'm a huge fan like again i'm i'm really optimist i'm really ho- again i'm not optimistic sorry i'm really hopeful or i'm really wishful that they'll continue this brand of cricket uh and in the world cup and in the asia cup so yeah fingers crossed on that and i i i'm hopeful as well and again great chatting with you uh we'll have you on again soon and and Likewise, the, keep up the great work thank you so much Thank you so much there. Thank you. Love this.